BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief at CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, who is at the American Academy in Rome. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on April 21st. It has been a busy week. Speaker Kevin McCarthy started it off at the New York Stock Exchange, priming his debt limit offer that he offered later on in the week. It's unclear who will vote for it, but it is an opening bid. What the House Republicans do seem to have the votes for is banning transgendered women from participating in men's sports and weighing in on the inner workings of the District of Columbia. Meanwhile, the country is awaiting another big decision on abortion rights from the Supreme Court as the justices weigh yanking FDA approval of the abortion medication Mifepristone. The GOP keeps moving away from where the public is on abortion, and this decision could call into question more than just abortion medication. It might be about all medication. Meanwhile, Ron DeSantis came back to Washington. He's been making the rounds as he gears up for a likely presidential bid, but is it helping or hurting him? Fox News settled with Dominion Voting Systems over its on-air lies about election fraud for more than $700 million. But no retractions, no corrections. And Senate Democrats are in a bit of a pickle with the extended absence of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Her time away from Washington has put a spotlight on the close margins in that chamber and the fragile health of many of its members. Here to discuss these topics and more are Jackie Alemany, Congressional Investigations Reporter at The Washington Post and contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Welcome, Jackie. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Catherine Telly McManus, covering Congress for Politico and co-author of the Huddle Newsletter. Hello, Catherine. Good morning. And Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America. Welcome, Matt. Hi there. So, uh, Jackie, this is uh, your your first go round uh, at, at the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Welcome, welcome. Um, it is. Take it easy on me. Everyone. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, let's let's start off with uh, Mr. McCarthy goes to New York. Uh, it's uh, if for any of any anybody out there listening uh, or on the panel who has never been to the New York Stock Exchange, it is it is a really cool place. And McCarthy seemed to be enjoying himself as he was talking about well some dire things and the debt limit. Uh, Jackie, what was what was your sense as you saw, you know, we, we haven't seen a speaker go to the New York Stock Exchange for such a speech in, in, in a little while, and the clock is starting to tick uh, on the debt limit. What were your, what was going through your mind as you were uh, watching McCarthy's speech? It was certainly an aggressive bid at trying to convince his own colleagues to sign on to his proposal to raise the debt limit, um, but at the same time uh, introduce some of these future spending restrictions that um, we've seen uh, put into this deal. Right now, the the contours look like they would raise it by $1.5 trillion or suspend it until March 2024 um, to in order to prevent a, a default. Um, but right now, 
it's unclear which one of those things will come first. It appears that McCarthy has been successful in, in sort of behind the scenes um, garnering some support for the proposal that, that would slash the federal budget back to um, the levels adopted in, in 2022 um, and also puts um, some caps on growth in federal agencies, which was a big sticking point for some of these um more conservative members. Uh, but Catherine, I, I know you, I think, are more in the weeds on how those whipping efforts are, are going. Yes. Yeah. Catherine, I was going to go right to you and say it's, he does not quite have the votes yet, does he? Yeah, the conversations are still ongoing, although Republicans left town this week pretty confident that they could get there by the vote next week. It sounds to me, talking to folks who have issues within the proposal, that they know that this, as written, is not going to become law. It obviously is not going anywhere in the Senate. And as written, Joe Biden would absolutely not uh, settle with this. And so they see this as if you support the opening, the opening bid, the opening shot, uh, then you can really get down to business and maybe get yourself in to those conversations about what would actually be moving forward. Um, but to come out strong together and say this is the House Republican proposal, I think is both what leadership want and what some folks I've talked to who do have issues with certain provisions in the measure are, are open to going along with. And I, I was going to say that the, I mean, the, the, it was like the White House, you know, just couldn't wait, you know, for something like this. I mean, like they, they're, they're taking a little bit of, of heat from some people saying like, I don't know if this is quite tenable to have, uh, you know, no proposal to just say they should lift the debt, but, but the president and, and his folks were, were just waiting to pounce on, on some of this. Let's, let's uh, listen to what the president said here. Yesterday, Kevin McCarthy went to Wall Street. He did not tell the wealthier, the powerful, that it's finally time for them to start paying their fair share of taxes. Instead, he proposed huge cuts to important programs that millions of Americans count on, millions of middle class, suburban, as well as inner city folks. He threatened to be the first one to default on the debt, which would throw us in a gigantic recession and beyond, unless he gets what he wants. You've got to ask yourself, what are MAGA Republicans in Congress doing? Matt, I couldn't help but notice that the president said huge. <laughs> uh, who, who is who is he? Who is the president speaking to here uh, in, in, in this uh, in, in, a, in a response like this? Is this just for the cameras? I mean, I, I think it's for the American public. You know, it, the calculus here for House Republicans seems to be that they can let their most vulnerable members walk the plank on legislation that they know is not going to become law. And then I guess just hope that Democrats don't use it against those members uh, in the next election cycle. That that seems pretty dubious to me. Uh, they're going to get killed over uh, voting for cuts of this magnitude. Uh, and, and I think that uh, uh, Joe Biden and the rest of the Democratic Party are, are more than willing to uh, give them a little bit of rope on that one. And and Jackie, I mean, the, the 
speaking of of messaging, I mean, there was a little bit of clutter with the Republican message because at the same time, you know, McCarthy's going to New York talking about uh, you know the debt limit to the you know to the to the stock exchange. We've also have this issue of of Jim Jordan doing this field you know the field hearings in New York you know recently and and the the investigations that are are really trying to get like the capture the headlines on crime and so forth it seems to be pulling in a couple different directions McCarthy trying to portray the Republicans as being good financial stewards and then on the other hand you have like these you know field hearings of that are basically calling into question whether a district attorney can can proceed in a, in a in a criminal investigation on his own without Congress looking into it. Absolutely, it was a chaotic contrast on Monday of events going on, and, and I was actually covering the hearing. I was supposed to be in New York, um, but ended up covering it from afar. Uh, but I do think it speaks to the tensions that McCarthy is dealing with, and that Jim Jordan, who's you know in essence a the shadow speaker um, for, you know, second in, second to McCarthy, um, who arguably holds more power than, than some of those in leadership who uh, are technically above him because of his investigative power, his subpoena power, and uh, a lot of the, again, hard right conservatives who have been clamoring for investigations into Democrats and the Biden administration for years now, since since they last had the majority and have really looked to Jordan uh, to, to lead those efforts. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, we were just talking before we started recording that the American people seem to be sort of seeing through some of these uh, more political endeavors like Jordan's weaponization committee, which hosted the hearing that uh, happened on Monday um, to try to paint Alvin Bragg in a negative light and sort of deflect some of the attention from the, his indictment to Donald Trump towards his record on crime. Republicans were sort of lacking in facts uh, and um, Ultimately, this this polling that the Washington Post conducted earlier this month showed that I think it was fifty six to thirty six percent of Americans believe that this is this committee is simply a political exercise. And Catherine, uh, one one bit of news that we got in the aftermath of of that hearing later on in the week was that a. Uh, Alvin Bragg had gone to court to sue to uh, quash the subpoena that Jordan had uh, submitted to to get uh, one of his uh, somebody formerly in the DA's office to talk about the the Trump probe. Um, the district court allowed that subpoena to go, so you know this this thing could be in in the headlines for a little while uh, with the with the back and forth over a subpoena, and ultimately, as we've seen with a lot of subpoena fights in courts over the last few years, when the Democrats were were in control of the House and, and Donald Trump was in the White House, this could go on for a long time and have no real resolution. Yeah, I think we are going to see this fight bounce back and forth. It also is just a pretty wild like power struggle between these congressional investigators and the the DA and others um, operating out of New York and the Justice Department. I think there's on both sides, people are seeing it as, you know, they're 
their right as an independent branch of government to pursue these investigations. Um, and the meddling is only going to antagonize each other further. So I think we're going to see both the rhetoric and the litigation like just go higher and higher at this point. Speaking of litigation, Matt, you've spent some time in the courtroom, uh, in the courthouse recently. Uh, do you want to talk about Fox News and Dominion and the and the settlement of that lawsuit and and the more lawsuits to come? Yeah, well, you know, I was supposed to uh, go up for the first two days of the trial. Uh, this is in the defamation lawsuit filed by Dominion Voting Systems over Fox News's lies about the company uh, in the wake of the 2020 election uh, as Fox tried to provide support for Donald Trump's election fraud claims. Um, it was supposed to be there for two days. That turned out to be the whole shebang. Uh, the judge announced that the parties had come to terms uh, on Tuesday afternoon, uh, and we later learned from the Dominion uh, lawyers that they had settled for uh, $787.5 million dollars. Uh, that is less than what Dominion originally sought, but it is uh, more than four times larger than any other uh, publicly known uh, settlement by a media company in U.S. history. It's uh, quite a lot of money. Um, and I, I think... Uh, Compared to uh, what usually happens when Fox News lies about things, uh, which is nothing, uh, a, a pretty substantial blow uh, to the company. And a substantial, I think I saw some um, estimates that it's you know up to twenty percent, maybe of their cash on hand. Uh, it it you know it, it is a blow, but they also spared themselves uh, the 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 spectacle of a trial of this of this being drawn out in public, as well as. Uh, you know, the, the possibility of more revelations about how they may have uh, talked about this off camera, uh, Rupert Murdoch's actual role in the in the company, uh, and also did not have to did not have to commit to actually correcting their, um, you know, w what they did on, on air. I mean, it just sort of it was like business as, it's business as usual, really, uh, for, you know, the, the, the folks on air. Uh, I think that's true to an extent. I, I would point out, though, that we learned quite a lot about Fox News's operations over the course of the last several weeks as, as Dominion released filings based on the internal Fox communications, text messages, and depositions that they had taken. Uh, and the picture that was painted was uh, pretty devastating. What you have is... Uh, top Fox executives uh, up to Rupert Murdoch, as well as Fox stars like Tucker Carlson uh, and producers at the network, uh, fully aware that uh, the claims about voter fraud in the 2020 election were total nonsense, but uh, allowing uh, these segments about Dominion to go on uh, nonetheless, uh, as well as a lot of uh, really <laughs> specific uh, statements from people like Rupert Murdoch about how they view the network as a propaganda factory. You had Rupert Murdoch literally instructing Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, to give more attention to Republican Senate candidates to make sure that they won their elections in 2020. Um, 
which is uh, pretty uh, unprecedented uh, to see written down like that. Um, you know, as for the apologies, uh, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that you would like to have, I guess, but I, I'm not sure what the actual impact uh, of such a thing would have been. Uh, I think what the Murdochs care about most is the money, and so uh, them having to pay quite a lot of it seems like a, a pretty uh, big stroke. Yeah. Uh Jackie, uh, back, back here in Washington, same, same day that the, you know, all the, the news is breaking uh, about the settlement of the lawsuit, Ron DeSantis was was back in Washington. He was formerly a member of Congress, of course. Now he's a two, two-time elected governor of Florida and widely seen as someone gearing up for a presidential run. He met with some folks uh, at the Heritage Foundation on the on the on Pennsylvania Avenue, one of their annex buildings, and and with some members of Congress and supporters. And it didn't seem to be that much of a news event. I mean, granted, there was a lot going on, but it it doesn't seem like there is this uh, widespread feeling of a, an ascendant Ron DeSantis at this point. No, and actually, there uh, was an interesting tweet last night on the heels of DeSantis's visit to Washington, D.C. from Congresswoman Anna Paulina Luna, who tweeted a a shot of members of the Florida delegation who endorsed Trump, who all went to Mar-a-Lago for a dinner last night. Um, Over seemingly two dozen of them sitting at a giant table in a gilded room with Make America Great Again hats. But um, DeSantis's polling uh, advantage has really plummeted. There's a Wall Street Journal poll out this morning on, on the heels of his visit as well, that his 14-point advantage in December has now fallen to a 13-point deficit. He trails Trump 51% to 38% in a hypothetical head-to-head amongst likely primary voters. And then there is the series of just bad stories that have come out about DeSantis, about his sort of bedside manners, um, some of his more extreme positions. My colleagues, uh, Isaac Arnsdorf, Josh Dossi, Hannah Knowles, uh, I think there are a few more people on that byline, had a great story about some of the concerns that are cropping up amongst donors, activists, and supporters who feel that DeSantis has already made unforced errors He's embraced positions that are too extreme in a general election, although that is sort of the status quo in primaries. Um, but the specifically, the, he signed an abortion ban last week that people are concerned about. He's had to clarify his comments on Ukraine. Uh, and again, it's the personal interactions that seem to be making the most headlines. Um, I, I, I believe you have, you might have something you want to play uh regarding those interactions yes i mean the the and again kudos to your colleagues you know going kind of going through uh you know the the desantis agenda in florida uh and then to uh to top it off uh the you know the trump and his campaign kind of doing what they do best which is finding what they what really can stick uh in in the cultural maw Uh, we have this ad and it's uh you know listener beware Ron DeSantis loves sticking his fingers where they don't belong. And we're not just talking about pudding. DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements. 
like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Oh, and somebody get this man a spoon. <laughs> Catherine, um, you know, here, here lies the uh the the risk of being a member of congress and voting on things that don't go anywhere uh because that all all of those votes that that ad mentions are you know are, are typically just turn out to be like messaging votes that people know aren't going to go anywhere but they keep the base happy and here it might be biting ron DeSantis uh on on the back end yeah, I think this is, of course, like what members worry about all the time when there is a messaging bill on the floor, uh, especially this was not necessarily Ron DeSantis, but especially more like frontline types who are in uh, tougher districts. But I mean, this week, I think what was so emblematic of the Trump versus DeSantis situation is having members of Congress walk out of the DeSantis event at the Heritage Foundation and say, yeah, I'm going with Trump uh, to, to have people who's, you know, signed up to attend From this event. Florida too. <laughs> Floridians. Um, and that Trump this week racked up quite a, uh, quite a number of congressional Republicans, congressional Floridians uh, in his camp, whereas DeSantis walked away with just the, just one. Um, and that really, to me, I don't know if it's a dam breaking, but it definitely uh, is changing the conversation and the personal interactions hearing about them on the Hill this week from lawmakers has been frankly incredible. I know that my colleagues reported out that Greg Stubbe, who had a terrible fall, you know, fr fractured so many bones in his body, he only remembers that Trump is one of the first people who called him in the hospital and DeSantis didn't say anything. And he's from Florida. He, uh, you know, represents Florida. He was found by a staffer of another Floridian lawmaker and his own governor kind of didn't get his act together to give this guy a call. Um, and so he's in Trump's camp. Uh, there is a lot more to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court uh, and their up upcoming ruling on Mifepristone. We will get to all of that after a short break here on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief of CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, along with Matt Gertz, Catherine Tully-McManus, and Jackie Alamani. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union of North America. Under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the iron workers say the sky's the limit, and boy, do they mean it. You look at most of America's iconic structures, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Sears Tower, the Arch in St. Louis, the New World Trade Center, all built by iron workers. Check out their website, ironworkers.org, to find out more about their great work. We salute the iron workers of America and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes 
without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, Editor-in-Chief of CQ Roll Call, setting in for Bill, along with Jackie Alemani of the Washington Post, Catherine Tully-McManus of Politico, and Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America. So, uh... Matt, we are expecting uh, a an, an abortion decision uh, fairly soon uh, from from the justices. Uh, the the there have been a number of stays put on a ruling from a Texas judge that uh, yanked FDA approval of mifepristone, uh, the abortion medication. Uh, and the the this is this seems to be you know uh, who knows where they are going. But one thing that seems uh, obvious is that this. Uh, further restrictions on abortions does not seem to be where the American public is right now. And this has got to be worrying Republican strategists as they gear up for 2024. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I tend to uh, get my sense of how Republicans are feeling about particular issues uh, by watching how Fox News covers them. And in this case, uh, Fox News has really buried uh, all of this uh, news about Mifepristone uh, over the first few days after the the initial Texas uh, and Washington State abortion rulings, you saw nearly eight hours of coverage on MSNBC, about seven hours of coverage on CNN, only 27 minutes on Fox News. So I I think uh, they, you know, serving as we learned from the Dominion filings as a Republican propaganda outfit, they understand that uh, this sort of news is not actually good uh, for Republicans, even if it is serving the interests uh, that conservatives have been fighting for for decades. And and Jackie, I mean, th- this is you know something that we've seen a number of of uh, Republican moderates uh, talk about. I mean, the the donors, uh, the RNC chair Rona McDaniel. The, I mean, the, they're they're talking about how the, you know the the House Republicans and Senate Republicans underperformed in twenty twenty two. Like that, they think that abortion had a big part in that. Um, Nancy Mace, for instance, we have a clip of her talking about this abortion. She's, uh, you know, considered a moderate in the Republican uh, Party. She had this to say. We haven't learned anything if we're going to sign a six-week ban mandating rape victims reported to police to get an exception and do it in the dead of night. That is not where the American people are. We will not win the popular vote in 24 if we continue down this path of extremism. It and. 
and yet the the issue just keeps coming up. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, Nancy Mace has a really interesting story. You know, she's talked about this before, but she is pro-life. Um, she's been very vocal about uh, being pro-life, um, but she has been outspoken about efforts to outright ban and and the efforts to further restrict abortion across the country. She And it, it sort of stems from, at least in conversations I've had with her, her personal experiences. Um, she was raped when she was in high school. It caused her to drop out of high school. She went to work at the Waffle House. And then from there, after she had sort of spiraled into a depression, um, drinking drugs, she was able to kind of self-heal, enrolled in the Citadel and got her life back on track. But um, she, you know, I, I, she has said how this is sort of the impetus for her speaking out against um, these I- extreme restrictions. Uh, it's also, I think, interesting because, you know, in, in the majority opinion that was issued last year uh, regarding overturning Roe v. Wade, which has really uh, been the event that has set off the, the the chain of dominoes on the issue of the abortion. Alito had written that um, that essentially one of the reasons to overturn Roe was to remove this issue from federal courts. Uh, clearly, abortion opponents have, have not heated and, and even with that court victory have returned to the federal court with the new tar- target, which make up half of abortions in the U.S. But, uh, you know, despite the polling and despite the closed door conversations that Republicans are having about how this issue is detrimental to them in winning elections, you know, Nancy Mace is still one of the only outspoken Republicans uh, that is speaking out against these restrictions. And Catherine, we even saw another vote in the, uh, on the other side of the chamber uh, over in the Senate. Tommy Tuberville, the senator from uh, Republican senator from Alabama, uh, got a vote on his uh, resolution of disapproval to uh, get rid of a, a VA uh, rule that allowed abortion access at, at VA, VA facilities that failed in the Senate. But again, it just keeps this thing in the headlines for them. Absolutely. And I think that something Republicans are going to have to think about, especially in the House, is when taking votes on proposals, whether they take up, you know, Lindsey Graham's uh, 15-week ban or other proposals, what that means for their, essentially their majority makers, even if it's the personal belief of the Republicans who won in New York, which really kind of brought House Republicans over that majority threshold, are Long Islanders ready for a very short time period before an abortion ban? Is that something that they're in favor of? And so looking at Republicans in Biden districts uh, and looking at keeping the House heading into 2024, having putting folks on the record on these abortion bans, I think is great for speaking to their base, speaking to the most uh, enthusiastic anti-abortion voices and activists. Uh, But I do think that 
looking down the line electorally, there are some danger zones for Republicans, as you said at the top of the show, compared to where polling puts the American public on abortion. Um, so I think it those will be tough votes for uh, those majority makers for House Republicans. And Matt, it seems like one uh, one issue that the Republicans do seem to think is a, a winner for them is um, is is you know, transgender issues. Uh, the, the House voted this week to, uh, you know, revise Title IX and make it more difficult for um, institutions to get Title IX funding if they allowed transgender women to participate in, in, in men's sports. Um, this isn't going to go anywhere in the Senate. They won't even take it up, uh, likely. But this seems to be a pivot that they, they feel a little more comfortable talking about this. And, you know, I, th- I think, you know, Virginia Fox had this uh, example. She says, did anybody think it would be fair if Muhammad Ali could have boxed women? And, you know, it, it, it's this, like, in- increasingly, you know, like, uh, upfront issue for them that is not a particularly big issue (laughs) that is there's not a lot of instances of it happening but it just seems to be this is the new wedge issue that they want yeah i I think a through line from a lot of things that we're discussing today is that governance by fox news doesn't work very well uh you know likewise uh we were talking earlier about the various investigations uh that jim jordan is doing which uh are fine if you're trying to create content uh, for a right-wing propaganda network, but is not particularly uh, dealing with issues that the American people care about. Uh, I think the various attacks on trans people fall into the same bucket. I don't think uh, the American people want to see uh, the rights of trans people uh, destroyed in the way that Republicans have been doing for the last couple of years, but they are following uh, the... Uh, wishes of Fox News hosts and other people in the right-wing media who have decided uh, that that is uh, one of their top priorities. I think it's it's really uh, sad um, and not something that is uh, to the benefit of either the Republican Party or the country as a whole. Catherine, I uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Senate. Um, you know, over the the two week recess that preceded this week, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein come, came under some criticism, uh, particularly from her home state colleague Ro Khanna, uh, in saying that Khanna was saying that she should step down. That 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 this is uh, um, her absence. She's out about of the shingles since February uh, has really hampered the Democratic agenda in the Senate. He's not an uninterested party. He's co-chairing Barbara Lee's Senate campaign, who's seeking to replace uh, uh, um, Dianne Feinstein in the, in the Senate in, in the 2024 election. But it brought to focus that there's an issue with Feinstein's absence. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, with Feinstein said that she would step down from the Judiciary Committee so they could move some, judge, some more judges to the floor. Uh, when Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, tried to do this, he was blocked by... Republicans uh, who, who said, nope, we're not going to do that. That's mean. But it, it really brings up uh, some delicate issues about Feinstein's age. She's 89. And also just how the, the Democrats don't have any uh, room to spare on, on votes sometimes. Yeah. And Democrats message th- oh, this week has been Republicans. This could happen to you at any point. Uh, the Senate is a place of the elderly. And there have already been folks who have spent 
extended periods of time away from Capitol Hill, whether it be Mitch McConnell, who fell and had a concussion and was in physical therapy and uh, rehab for weeks. John Fetterman just came back after two months uh, undergoing inpatient treatment for depression. This happens on both sides of the aisle and uh, Democrats are looking at it as a courtesy, whereas Republicans are looking at it as an they're saying unprecedented. I will say I talked to this Senate historian last week and they were still trying to dig up examples of temporary uh, replacements on a committee. Um, and I think that it is challenging senators on both sides to think about how you can move forward with these tiny margins and the realities of life that some people are going to miss uh session days. I also think that there has, I, I don't think I know if there've been these uh, discussions and defense of Senator Feinstein by Nancy Pelosi and by others that when other senators were clearly in serious health and mental decline while running major committees, there was not this public pressure campaign necessarily to get them to resign. I can remember not to like disparage someone who was struggling, but Thad Cochran, while he was running the Senate Appropriations Committee, would be lost in the building. Um, And I don't remember hearing you know, a concerted calls for him to step down. And so Nancy Pelosi is kind of saying this is sexist. Uh, But of course, Democrats in California in 2018 did not back Dianne Feinstein to return to the United States Senate. The the state, of course, voted for her to do so. Um, But these concerns have been in in the mix for a long, long time. And I do think that there are concerns, not just about her ability to do the job, but also she has a tremendous legacy and folks who really love and respect her are concerned about damaging a really impactful career that she's had in the Senate. Yeah. And one of one of the you mentioned Mitch McConnell, I wanted to uh, play a clip of the speech when he when he got back. I mean, again, we hadn't seen him for weeks. We've gotten very little information from from his folks. Um, You know, the McConnell people never uh, and McConnell himself never says anything that he doesn't want you to. That He doesn't know the exact effect it will have, it it seems. Uh, So uh, let's play that clip. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, McConnell and some of the issues there. It's good to be back. Suffice it to say, this wasn't the first time that being hard-headed has served me very well. Jackie, uh, he, he got right right down to business right after thanking everybody for the well-wishing, including uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, and, and just it was like he had not, he had not left. Uh, it's just right into the Biden administration is uh, destroying the fabric of American life. And, you know, we need to, you know, do something on the debt limit and basically everything, the wet, the weather is Biden's fault, you know, <laughs> things like that. Right. Uh, it, it seems like he hadn't skipped a beat, even though he had been missing for weeks. Yeah. And, and um, we know he's suffered from a concussion, but this um, seems like a very McConnell-esque, approach to to keep 
things right on track and pretend it's just business as usual, even the details around um, him being out and in the hospital for a short stint were kept pretty close to the vest and we didn't get much more detail. But I think, you know, McConnell's been savvy about how to deal with Diane Feinstein. Um, he said he's not going to be a part of sidelining her so that Democrats can push through a small fraction of nominees who are, as he's called, extreme and unqualified. Um, but I also think that this is a, a kind of a good example of what Catherine was speaking to. Um, you know, the fact that when Thad Cochran had suffered his fair share of health issues, you didn't see Democrats sort of um, rallying around that as a uh, as part of their political strategy. But and I think it speaks to you know the difference in tactics between Republicans and Democrats and something that often really frustrates the Democratic Party and Democratic members that Democrats are not aggressive enough. They play too much by the rules and Republicans have sort of no problem um, doing whatever is most politically expedient, even if that means at times sort of uh, eating their own. And and Matt, uh, one thing I can't help but, but note too is that a lot of um, a lot of particularly right-wing media, they seize on every, you know, verbal tumble that, uh, that Biden has. I mean, we are dealing with uh, a, a political leadership circle, you know, of people in their 80s. McConnell is 81, you know, Biden is, is 80, you know, I mean, Feinstein's 89, Donald Trump is in his late 70s. I mean, the, the, is this hazardous for people to pick, uh, pick on folks about this, about age stumbles? Because it, it, uh, th that's the audience for a lot of this, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is, uh, but at, at the same point, I, I think the worry that you have to have is the Ruth Bader Ginsburg scenario, right? Where uh, someone is... Uh, unwilling to retire, thinks that they could still do the job, uh, and then uh, time passes and their passing ends up doing uh, incredible damage, not only to their legacy, but to uh, all of the uh, things that they had worked to accomplish uh, over the course of their lives. Uh, and so that, that I think, is the real uh, fear on the Democratic side, uh, as far as, uh, you know, Dianne Feinstein not being able to uh, vote for judges who would uh, be casting decisions uh, that she would uh, favor. You know, Republicans are very, very good at prioritizing the U.S. court system and, and uh, you know, using the rules and their power to put uh, the judges that they want on the bench. And Democrats uh, seem to prioritize um, you know, saying nice things about their friends uh, rather than uh, making tough decisions. Well, uh, we have covered a lot today. We could we could go on. There there are m more things uh, to to discuss, but uh, we are going to uh, put a cork on it. Um, in, in that, I'm Jason Dick, uh, editor in chief of CQ Roll Call, sitting in for Bill, who is in Rome at the American Academy. I've been joined by Matt Gertz, Catherine Tully McManus, and Jackie Alamani. And 
Before we go, though, it is time for your favorite stories of the week. These can be funny, sad, important, or just great reads. Uh, the, again, we we had a, a surplus of them. Uh, Jackie, first time, uh, first time participant, longtime fan. Uh, you get to go first. Um, well, I have a little bit of a local and personal connection to this story. Um, Scott McFarlane of CBS News did this lovely, heartwarming profile of um, a teacher in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Mr. Kokanis, who is 93 and still kicking and has no plans on retiring. He happened to be my uh, best friend's high school teacher. She's now a teacher and one of Mr. Kokanis's current students who was interviewed by Scott in the piece is her former student. So it was a lovely story, feel good, palate cleanser, and a sort of special full circle moment for me to witness um, as we all love our teachers and should pay them more. <laughs> As a, as a former teacher and the son of a teacher, I heartily agree. <laughs> uh, Catherine, how about you? So this is from last week, but I only saw it this week and it I laughed out loud. Uh, last week when Joe Biden was in Ireland, he stopped by a sports field where kids were playing hurling, which has a ball flying through the air. We won't get into the whole thing. Uh, an 11-year-old who was playing made a really bad shot and the ball came very close to president biden um she's embarrassed but the irish times bless them got on the phone with her dad the this little athlete's dad and he said they're calling her lee hurley oswald (laughs) 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 which he says they're calling her i just don't think 11 year olds in ireland are that tuned in to the Kennedy assassination. So I think he has coined his own daughter, Lee Hurley Oswald, but I I had to send it to my own dad because there's nothing better than a dad joke like that. Um, and that just cracked me up and carried me through this week. And, and especially a dad Irish joke too. Yes. <laughs> that good. Tully McManus, you could tell where I'm from. <laughs> uh, Matt. Regular listeners of the Bill Press Pod know that I always use this time to talk about my favorite media conspiracy theory, one I don't believe, but it is kind of funny to talk about, which is that the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal uh, and are reporting Uh, on the rich in order to bring about the revolution. Uh, So this week, uh, we've got uh, a piece in the journal, four homes later, one thing remains the same, their interior decorator. Uh, For many homeowners, engaging with an interior decorator, architect, or builder on a big home project is a one-and-done deal. But for people who own multiple homes, these relationships can turn into lifetime collaborations as they use the same professionals to help them upsize, downsize, relocate, or purchase seasonal homes. Such partnerships can lead to close friendships, industry professionals say, and often bear increasingly interesting results over the course of designing many projects together. It's a really heartwarming story about about uh, various people who spend millions of dollars purchasing homes and then millions of dollars uh, rehabilitating them and the friends that they make along the way. Shout out to the DSA operatives at the Journal. 
Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and to me, um, as some of you may know out there, listeners and, and, and colleagues, I have a bit of a thing for uh, New Orleans. I love visiting. I, f- I feel very at home there. I love the food. I love the music. I love the people. Um, and I couldn't help uh, but just delight in a story from uh, The Bitter Southerner, uh, which is an Atlanta-based uh, publication about Southern uh, culture and, and matters. Uh, it is a, it's a great story about a, uh, a place in New Orleans that I did not know about, uh, which is called Melba's. Uh, and I will just read a short uh, lead into it. Welcome to America's best po'boy shop slash daiquiri bar slash laundromat slash video poker den slash bookshop. <laughs> Attending a book signing at Melba's in New Orleans can feel a little like going to see Macbeth at a NASCAR track. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story. Melba's is uh, th- this place next to an auto zone uh, off of North Claiborne and uh, Ellicene Fields uh, just outside the French Quarter. Um, I will be definitely going there uh, in, in the future because among its uh, charms is that if you go to a uh, book signing and get a, a po' boy, you get uh, also a, a, a copy of the book of the author who is is uh, is reading there. And among the people who have uh, read there and and signed books uh, are Colson Whitehead and Hillary Clinton. Uh, so it's it's more uh, it, it it really is a place that is only. I think could only be in New Orleans. Uh, you know, it, it is. It sounds awesome. I highly encourage people to read this story. It's a lot of fun, and they have, they will definitely get another customer during my next trip to New Orleans. Um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun to read that. All right, um, that is a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening, and to Jackie Alamani, Congressional Investigations Reporter at the Washington Post, contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Catherine Tully-McManus, covering Congress for Politico, co-author of the Huddle Newsletter, and Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow at Media Matters for America. I'm Jason Dick, sitting in for Bill. Next Tuesday, Bill will be back with an interview with the United States Ambassador to the Holy See, or as it's commonly called, the Vatican. Former Indiana Senator and now Ambassador Joseph Donnelly talks to us talks to Bill about how the U.S. kept the Pope solid on Ukraine. You may recall at the beginning of the war, the Pope seemed to not take sides. So listen for that. Thanks for listening to this roundtable and have a great weekend.